You're listening to Talking Smart. The official podcast of the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers. This is Paul Pimentel, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Ben Nagy from Smart TD Communications and Les Pauling from Smart Communications, along with Michael Blaine from Smart Communications, who is producing this episode. Welcome to the 22nd episode of Talking Smart. Each month, we bring you news, guests, and discussion of interest to smart members and working families across the United States and Canada. This episode is focused on organizing, which is the foundation of our union. It's how we build strength in our industries. It's at the core of our outreach and recruitment efforts, and it's how we connect with workers at non-union contractors and work to bring them into our movement to raise industry standards, improve workplaces, and build a better future for all of us. Our featured guest this episode is Eli Bacchus, the Director of Partnership Development at Smart Local 33 in Ohio. In that capacity, he also heads the local's organizing efforts. Most of his construction experience was in the residential industry. His father owns a residential roofing company, and brother Bacchus spent many years doing that work. He has also done drywall and kitchen remodeling, and he is a veteran of the United States Army. Prior to working for Local 33, he was a practicing labor attorney for five years. Among other topics, Eli discussed the direct relationship between prioritizing organizing in our industries and our leverage at the bargaining table to win better contracts for our existing members. What that does when we are able to bring in more members and produce more man hours is it gives us more strength at the bargaining table to help negotiate a higher wage rate for our members. Eli also discussed how organizing via direct conversations with non-union contractors, as well as through traditional bottom-up organizing or strategic campaigns targeting low-road employers, helps us to build union density in our markets and to win more work and better standards in our industries. So if we have a high union density and no contractors, we have nothing. And if we have a lot of contractors and no members, we have nothing. We got to have both high union density and high market share to command more money at the table and get better negotiated contracts for the members. In addition, listen for the open mic segment with General President Joseph Sellers at the end of this episode. He responds to a question about what types of new work and big projects are on the horizon for members in our industries. You know, infrastructure and those types of projects has a ripple effect across many, many industries. And certainly ours has a lot of job and job opportunities. And we're really gonna need to recruit and retain like we've never done before. Eli, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Today, we're here to talk about organizing. Organizing is the lifeblood of the labor movement. Organizing is the reason why we're all here, why we have collective bargaining agreements, why we have contracts. Sometimes, for a lot of us, a lot of us come in through apprenticeships. A lot of us come in through people we know, through the trade. Um, But it wasn't always like that. Um, We had to build a union before we had the opportunities to just come in and go into training schools and build that infrastructure. And and that's where organizing comes in. And that's where the original framework and the building blocks of this union start at. Eli, as a Local 33 member and as director of organizing there at Local 33, can you tell us why organizing matters? Sure, so to me, organizing is the core foundation of our collective bargaining strength, right? Organizing is what brings more members in who are currently non-union. You know, we help out with the apprenticeship too, don't get me wrong, and bringing in more contractors, right? We're constantly losing existing contractors. We need to replace them or we're going to die on the vine. Also, our members are retiring every day. So we need to replace those members. And sometimes our apprenticeships are not enough to put in there because we don't have enough contractors taking apprentices. So we have to find ways to both increase our union density, being our membership, and our market share, being our contractors, in order to survive into the future. And that's why organizing is important, because that's the job of the organizer. Eli, can you tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you came to Local 33? Sure. I was a uh, practicing labor attorney for about five years before I started with Local 33. When I was in practice, I helped various trades a lot in Indiana with organizing campaigns. So I was primarily brought in to be the hammer on the campaign, you know, when they had a legal issue going on, that's when I would get involved. And so after doing that for a while, the firm that I was with actually represented was general counsel for Local 33. 
And Mike Coleman at the time, who was the business manager, I'll say he had some reservations about how well the organizing department was doing. And so he and my former boss talked and came up with the concept of having uh, me come in and sort of give fresh eyes to the department and try to see what was going wrong and see if there's any way to fix it. And so I spent about six months total full time with the local while I was working essentially as a consultant and then three months part time. And then I eventually hired in. Uh, that was in July of 2015. So I hired on directly with the local at that time. I was interested in unions. I grew up in the construction industry, but in the residential market. And so I didn't really know much about unions. I grew up in Southern California. And so I didn't really know that like unions, not, not that they didn't still exist, but that there was an actual career opportunity for me when I got done with law school. And I was really interested in unions in law school, but I still wasn't sure if I could actually make a career out of it. So having the opportunity to actually work with unions and then become a part of a union was something that I, I really look forward to and still value uh, to this day. So let me follow up to that question. Um, during that time since you since you came on, how many shops have you organized? So since 2015, Local 33 has organized 86 new companies. That's just on a top-down approach primarily. There's been other campaigns that we've run that what the IA calls strategic campaigns. I look at those as more pressure campaigns. And then we've done a, one or two bottom-up campaigns, not successfully, um, but we have run them. So you mentioned you've gotten a lot of results for these organizing campaigns and you're working with organizing contractors uh, using, you mentioned top down, and I guess the other terminology is, is bottom up. Can you kind of explain, uh, because you know, me coming from the transportation division, uh, I'm not quite familiar with these methods. Uh, can you explain what the terms mean for folks? And then also, how do you know which of those two strategies or approaches to take once you embark upon an organizing campaign? So what we call bottom-up organizing is essentially the traditional method of union organizing that most industries, union industries or crafts will use. That's going out and talking to the workers at a shop and trying to get them to elect to have the union represent them as their collective bargaining agent. And then you have to go to an election or some kind of substitute for an election in order to get the owner or the company to recognize the local or the union as the collective bargaining agent for the workers. Top down is only available in the construction industry. And that is that we are allowed to have what's called a pre-hire agreement. And that's where we can go in and have a contractor sign an agreement with the local and agree that the people that they hire will be union members. And that's when they have no employees whatsoever. I mean, they can have no employees whatsoever. So it's before the hiring is even done, they agree to be union. So a strategic organizing approach is designed to use legal means to figure out leverage points in order to try to get a contractor to become union or to say, you know what, this particular market that the union is in control of or that's part of the union's jurisdiction is not worth my effort. Uh, so I'll just go pursue work in other locations. So Eli, you know, for members out there, a lot of members don't realize how much organizing affects them and affects their collective bargaining strength. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the concrete benefits are that members receive when a local increases their organizing capacity and they increase their market share? Sure, so one of the things that I actually track and have tracked since 2015 is how many man hours we're bringing in through new contractors. Because to me, that's the real benefit that an organizing effort should have for our members directly, which is we need to be able to put them to work right? That's what they care about. We as an organization represent members. So we want to bring in more members to strengthen our, our union density in the area. But on the individual member basis, we have to show them the tangible benefits. And so what I've tracked over the last 15 years is that through our efforts in the organizing department and, and as a local, we've increased the number of labor hours that we're bringing in by 1.2 million hours. So that means that those contractors that we've signed up have reported 1.2 million hours since 2015. And that is, you know, if our members are working on average 1,500 hours a year, 
that's hundreds of members that we've been able to put to work for one year or two years or whatever it is so that they've had successful careers during that time period based off of our efforts. And again, that's aggregated and, and one member might get so many hours, another member might get another number of hours, but it's really provided a good replacement for some of our existing contractors at the same time have gone out of business, right? That's part of the problem is we have contractors going out of business. So when we sign up new contractors, we don't always see a growth as a local because we're sometimes just replacing the long-term existing contractors that we have. And in Local 33, we have a residential market and a billing trades market. And so 70% or roughly 70% of the 1.2 million hours that we've brought in are from billing trades hours. Another 30% or so are residential. And what we do, we don't find a lot of commercial contractors in our jurisdiction that are non-union. There's only probably five or six. And so we target smaller residential contractors and try to help them and educate them about getting into the billing trades market. Now, what that does when we are able to bring in more members and produce more man hours is it gives us more strength at the bargaining table to help negotiate a higher wage rate for our members. So not only were we able to negotiate a higher wage rate, but we also have you know, health and welfare contributions that need to be made, pension contributions that need to be made. And the more members and the more man hours that we're putting into those different funds, the stronger those funds become and the less contributions that need to be made for each individual member out of those funds. So our members are able to see a, a higher wage. And when we get those wages, we can then contribute less to our fringe benefits and keep the same level of coverage. And so we're, again, able to put more and more money towards our members' pocket instead of through some other ancillary measures or, or not ancillary, but fringe benefits. That is certainly a great benefit, but it doesn't actually help put food on the table. And particularly right now, that's something that's vitally important. So basically, collective bargaining is coming through organizing. You have nobody, right? You have low market share. You're only going to have so much power. Yeah, I mean, the thing that we talk to a lot of apprentices to come in to explain to them, you know, what the organizing department is out there doing for them. And we talk about having union density, but having zero market share and union density being the number of union members we have in an area, market share being the number of contractors, the amount of work we have in an area. So if we have a high union density and no contractors, we have nothing. And if we have a lot of contractors and no members, we have nothing. We got to have both high union density and high market share to command more money at the table and get better negotiated contracts for the members. You're listening to Talking Smart. Mobilize, organize, unionize. Do you have story ideas or have a question for the general president or union leadership? Call us toll free at 844-984-0947 with your questions or ideas. Once again... 844-984-0947. So we mentioned a, a little bit about the different strategies and, you know, you've been growing the size of the local and getting more uh, places organized. Are there measures or anything that you use to sort of determine which of the three strategies that you want to take on? Yes. So the first thing we're ever going to do with the contractor is go try to talk to them. And the, the reason is it's the most efficient method that we have. We don't have to go through an election. We don't have to you know, wait for politicians to help us out. We just go talk to them. And if we can convince a, a contractor to become union, then I don't want to say it's easy, but that's a very direct and quick approach. Then for bottom up, we look at it and say, okay, is, is this a non-construction industry company that still falls within the jurisdiction of the sheet metal workers? So in those situations, we would have to go with a bottom-up or a pressure campaign, but more likely a bottom-up. Or if there's a contractor that we've approached top-down and they have not responded to us in any way, then we can look at, depending on the size of the company, whether that contractor is important enough to run a bottom-up campaign. A bottom-up campaign is going to require a lot more of an organizer's time to complete successfully. So depending on the size of that contractor, we might decide to do a bottom-up. Now, we haven't done a bottom-up campaign in the construction industry since I've been here. And the reason is, think about the Trump board. The Trump board didn't care about organizing, didn't care about helping the workers at all. And so it became easier than it was, which was already easy for a contractor to actually engage in unfair labor practices that we couldn't provide evidence for, say, buying off an employee, right? So we come in and we say, hey, we're going to get you more money on the check and we're going to get you better benefits. 
Well, all that contractor would have to do is actually provide the, the more money or better benefits to get the employee to vote no, not understanding that they don't actually have a contract for those benefits still. It's still at the employer's whim. But if we can't get an employee to testify that that's actually happened, then we can't get anywhere. So uh, there are some costs involved with bottom-up organizing. So it's not something that we've done. We have done some in, in the manufacturing sector. Again, as I said earlier, haven't been successful. And then for strategic campaigns or pressure campaigns, that to me is they're bigger companies on a top-down side. They don't really care about what we can offer them to help them grow. They're already at that point. So they're not talking to us. They're getting into some of our core markets in our metropolis areas. We ran one in Cleveland. We had a big company in Charleston, West Virginia that we ran a campaign against. So that has to do with just size of company for Local 33. And then there's some hot button issues if, you know, we'll look at it if a contractor, when we go into their shop, you know, they're basically completely disrespectful to our local. We'll look at doing something as a way to say, listen, we, we came in, talked to you very professionally and you were very discourteous to us. And so we're going to show you how it could have gone if we would have decided to do it a different way. You know, you just mentioned two campaigns you had in, against a developer in Cleveland, and you had that other campaign in, in West Virginia. Can you tell us a little bit about those campaigns and some of the anecdotes behind that? Because I think a lot of people out there, when they hear about organizers and they hear about organizing, they think it's a lot easier than it actually is. You know, there's a phrase, and it's a very true phrase, that the hardest job in the labor movement is being an organizer. You're on call 24 hours a day. A lot of times you're going to lines, you're going to, to job sites, three, four o'clock in the morning. You're not getting home till 11, 12 at night, see your family. And so can you talk a little bit about those two campaigns, kind of what it takes to be out there? Sure. So the first campaign, we call it the Crocker Park campaign. And Crocker Park is a, I'll say, the... Uh, most high-end mall in the Cleveland area. And so what happened is the developer who owned Crocker Park had a construction arm and they decided to build a 29-story apartment building downtown Cleveland using our biggest non-union competitor in the area. And we had run various campaigns against this company, the, the non-union competitor, I'd say three or four times since 2000. And we were never able to make enough of an impact on that company to get them to slow down or to agree to become union. And so what we did is we decided to not run the campaign against the non-union contractor, we would run the campaign against the developer. And one of the reasons what we made that, that decision was that we felt that the developer had a lot more uh, opportunities for us to go after their credibility in the marketplace from their customers. So we felt that we can make an impact on the non-union contractor through that developer. And so what we did is it took a lot of research, but we looked at every single restaurant or food establishment or any type of establishment that was covered by the health department. And then we tracked all the health code violations that that Crocker Park Mall, all the restaurants in the Crocker Park Mall had. And over a three-year period of time, there was something like 700 health code violations. And then we went out and we started informing the public about the health code violation. And the first night that we were out there, I remember I was standing in what I figured to be the most busy spot in the mall. It's an outdoor mall. And I was reading off health code violations in front of Northern restaurants. I was never asked to leave, but I was, you know, it was implied that it would be nice if I left. Eventually, the cops were called and part of the mall was public property. The developer had decided to give back a piece of the property in order to get a tax abatement on the roads. So they gave back the roads and the sidewalks. And I kept trying to tell the police, OK, we're going to go to that area. Now that we're no longer allowed here, we're going to go to that area. And I think I was probably a little bit hot at the time. And I was maybe a little bit less respectful than I should have been to the police officers. And so I was told if I said anything else that I would be arrested. And I said, that's fine. But just so you know, that's public property over there. And so I was arrested and put in jail for a couple hours. I remember Mike Coleman had to come and bail me out. And then what happened is we would go every day and almost every night, lunchtime, dinner time, and we would go out there. We had rotations. So that way we had it constantly staffed. 
And I would go out there and I had a, a bullhorn and I would read off the health code violations. And then I would talk about things that the CDC says about, you know, what can happen to contaminated food and basically what food contamination can do to you. And I don't remember all the specifics, but I remember that I would be reading stuff about, you know, having watery and bloody diarrhea, fevers, nausea, stomach aches and cramps. And we did that for literally about six months. And then that company also owned apartment buildings. And we started going around to the apartment buildings at the same time and tried to get the tenants there to institute rent strikes. And so we were at the mall, we were at the apartment buildings, they were all over Cleveland. And eventually I had been sued by the owner of the company personally for defamation. And so eventually they wanted to settle the lawsuit, even though they weren't anywhere in the lawsuit. We hadn't even gotten past the complaint phase of the lawsuit really, and they wanted to settle it. And so we ended up negotiating a settlement with them, which I can't get into the specifics of the settlement, but we felt as a local that we had prevailed in that case and that our issues would, would be addressed. So that was one campaign and that was a fun campaign. I really like pressure campaigns. I just don't always think they're as effective at getting our members work personally. So some of the funny things that came out of that campaign is we were hauled into a hearing on several times where we had to testify and some of their own high level employees testified because they were trying to get an injunction against me from going out there and using the bullhorn that they were scared to eat at the restaurants at the mall and that they were concerned that they had gotten sick at the mall. And so when I would be out there with the bullhorn and I would see these employees who, who are like in charge of the mall, I would always say hi to them and I would read their testimony verbatim over the bullhorn and tell all the customers, hey, look, that's what these people are saying about this place. And so they again eventually decided they didn't want to deal with us. And that non-union company did not lose the work on that project. But I know personally, we've since recruited the guy who was running that job for that company. He's now a member that that non-union company didn't make any money on that job. There was another campaign that we ran in Charleston, West Virginia. It was against a company called Appalachian Heating and Cooling. Now, originally we thought that company had about 13 people in it. I mean, that was a decent sized shop, especially for that area. We sent in two salts. One of them was a staff member and one of them was a, a rank and file member. And our initial plan had been to send the, the staff member in and what we'll do sometimes in, in situations like that is we'll have them go in the first day wearing a union or organizer shirt, take pictures of them. So that way, when they get fired, we can establish that the company knew that, that he was a union member. And that allows us to then take him to the board for a ULP. A few years earlier, we'd been successful in getting a, an organizer salt terminated in 26 minutes and it ended up costing that company about $27,000 for that 26 minutes that that person worked there. So initially it was just to go in and use the legal methods to get that contractor to, to make decisions that they didn't want to work in our area. Well, we found out in a couple of days that, that that company actually had about 50 employees. So they are a much bigger animal than what we had originally understood them to be. So we knew that the company in 2004 or eight, I don't remember exactly when now off the top of my head, had briefly been in the propane business and they did not train their employees to actually safely, there's a course that you have to take and they didn't provide that to these, this particular junior installer. And they were transferring a propane tank from right next to the building to a 10 feet away or, or something like that within safe distance where it was supposed to be located. And so this poor individual somehow got stuck with this propane tank open, hands frozen to the valve, and the propane tank ended up exploding and killing four people. So we started using that information against the contractor and letting the public know about it. We were putting it on Facebook. The government did a report and created a video. So we were running the video that the government created. We were picketing at their shop. We had billboards, but we changed their logo. I think their name was Appalachian, the big name in home comfort. And we changed it to the Appalachian, the big name in home explosions. We had a billboard right across the street from their office. We put billboards right next to two of the three entrances to the gated community that the two owners lived in. So that billboard incident caused a lot of problems down in their community, which is about two hours south of Charleston. And eventually the guy who owned the billboard company backed out of it really fast. Uh, we had them up for about four or five days, but then we also, we knew that they got about, that company got about $3 million worth of revenue, or we estimated it to be about $3 million worth of revenue from Lowe's. 
And so on Memorial Day weekend, we all went down to Lowe's. We had shirts made up that were exactly like their shirts, except for instead of saying Appalachian, it said Crapalation Cheating instead of Appalachian Heating. And then we took a blowtorch to them and burned them up. We had our members put on latex scars and, and burn marks. And we went to eight lows on that Saturday before Memorial Day. We stayed out there. The instructions were four hours or until you get told to leave by the police. And so one of the locations I was at, we were out there for four hours. It took them th- two hours and two and a half hours for the manager to even come out and say anything. But we had a sign that said, you know, Lowe's hires a company that's killed people through installations. And we've talked to the customers about that. So I was surprised how long it took them to come out there. And then the next location we went to in about an hour, the police were there. So the store owner, part of it was, you know, a polite Southern thing to say is, you know, they didn't want to tell me to leave, which legally they have to do is to tell me to leave in order for me to be considered trespassing. What they said was, would you mind leaving? And I, I mind it. So I didn't take that to be actually them telling me to leave. And so when the cop came, I told him that I was going to continue to exercise my First Amendment right and pass out handbills to customers until he gets this sorted out inside. And he told me that if I did that, I was going to get arrested. And while I knew legally I was right to continue to exercise my First Amendment right, I surely didn't want to spend the next several days in a jail in Southern West Virginia because Memorial Day weekend, I didn't figure I'd actually get a hearing until Tuesday of the next week to be able to get out of jail. And so we just eventually decided to move the location to being on public property, but we continued there. And that campaign went on for a year and a half. We had two salts in that company for a long time. They eventually got terminated, both of them for being union. We went to a hearing with the labor board. I think we won 12 counts out of 19. The labor board appealed themselves. They thought that the administrative law judge was wrong. And then eventually those salts were ordered to be put back to work. One guy had ended up going to Pittsburgh to work at the cracker plant that was going there, and he certainly wasn't going to come back. And the other staff salt no longer works at a local. And so neither of them went back. But eventually, I think just a couple of weeks ago, actually, they were paid the back pay that they were owed from the company. Then we had 19 members who did a mass application for us, and we got 14 of them, about $1,000 each eventually for about two hours work. So, you know, talk about impact to the members. That was a situation where for two hours work, we were able to get each one of those guys about $1,000. And that's something, you know, mass application cases are something that are harder and harder to do. So, you know, I felt really glad that we were able to get that many legitimate claims for the board to recognize, even during the Trump board. So this was during the Trump board that you got a mass application through? Yep. Wow. Yep. And the only reason why we didn't go to trial is because it was in the pandemic. They had backed off of the work. They had backed off of doing work in the area that we were concerned about. And we told them, look, if you stay out of this area, we don't care. So they understood. And so we told them, just pay the members. We knew that all those members had been working the whole time. And so if the board really got into it, none of the members would have got paid anything because they didn't miss anything. So we figured it was a it was a better decision for us to get our members some money versus having our members miss work and not getting anything at the end of the day anyways. At the end of the day, it's kind of a win in a way because you minimize their role in your jurisdiction. Yeah, definitely. That's what we had as our goal. Rail workers kept our supply chain moving throughout the pandemic making sure American families were fed and our economy kept moving while making the rail carriers billions in record profits. But since November 2019, the carriers have refused to reward workers with a fair contract. Text the words FAIR CONTRACT to 67336 to receive updates on how to support rail workers, including information on rallies in your area and other actions you can take. Message and data rates may apply. So uh, Eli, a couple of different things. These are really exciting experiences to hear about, you know, the, sort of the, the boots on the ground activism, being able to uh, organize and expand and, and grow the union. So I kind of want to ask sort of a two-pronged question here. The first is, how do folks get involved in becoming an organizer? And then the second part of the question would be, what sort of challenges do our new organizers face once you know they have to go out there and actually get to work on a property? So for Local 33, 
it, it used to be the case that essentially you were picked to be an organizer, meaning that like you volunteered to do leafleting or to help out the rec fund or, or something like that. And, or you were on eboard and you, you made yourself known that you were interested in working for the union. And then, you know, depending on the area, we have nine districts. So depending on where the, the exact need is, and we'd go to that district and ask for recommendations or the manager would pick somebody. And that's how that person was chosen. Now, what we do is we will put out for resumes. Last year, we hired two new organizers because we, we had laid off because of COVID. And we didn't really have an exact place that we wanted them because we had shrank down to just a couple members in the department. So we put out resumes for the whole local. You know, we weren't looking for anything that's, you know, great resume skills or anything like that. We just wanted them to submit a resume. And then I phone interviewed every single person, asked them the same questions. I gave them a score based on the same questions. And then based off the scores, we brought them in for in-person interviews where me and the other two organizers that were then on staff had an in-person interview. And then we picked the best two out of that panel and presented them to the manager. And the manager actually makes the final decision. I wanted to make sure that we were not just approaching the members that regularly come. I wanted to make sure that we were getting truly the best people out there in the local, whether they had families and it was hard for them to come to union meetings or they were regular attendance, you know, at union meetings and union functions. So I wanted to make sure that we were really broadening our, our net to make sure that anybody who's interested, any member who's interested actually had a shot at it. So that's what we've done since I've been here is ask for resumes. And so then for when you ask about what sort of the challenges are out there, I think it really depends on the size of the local and what sort of organizing structure is currently there. Here in Local 33, we have now a staff of five. We've been, you know, at one point we had nine people. So when you come into a local like that, where you have staff members who have been around for a long time and can actually mentor somebody, the challenges are much less than if you are at a single organizer local where you're replacing somebody for whatever reason that person's no longer there. And maybe even none of the other staff, you know, the manager, the agents, whatever, have any organizing experience. Those two situations are completely different. So for us, you know, we run them through, I think, about four to five weeks of training, a few weeks with me, a few weeks with Shane Vermilly, who's our most senior organizer and what I call the lead top-down organizer. And then time with Steve Hancock, who is the other long-term organizer here. So we really make sure that they have a, a good understanding before we start turning them out on their own. And even then those, you know, we still do a lot of stuff together because it's just better to do these things for whatever legal reasons, you know, to have witnesses, if you're going to do something like that, or just training and sales teams in which is what sort of top down is function better in pairs. So that's how we do it. And so the challenges for a new organizer I don't think are great in our organization because we always have somebody there that can help walk them through that process. Now, on the other hand, when you have, when you're walking into this job and you have no experience in your local at doing it, you know, no one who can actually help train you, you rely on the IA organizer to help you out, right? But they also have other locals to help out with. And so it's a lot of on the job learning. Sort of the joke is, okay, here's your keys, buddy. Go out there and start organizing, you know? So in that situation, there are a lot of challenges, knowing trespass laws, knowing how to pick it, because there's you know so many different regulations on how to pick it effectively, knowing what you can say on handbills and what you can't say on handbills. If you want to do top-down organizing, what do you actually say to a contractor when you go in their door? So those to me are two different extremes. I certainly hope that the people in our department understand how fortunate they are that they don't have to try to basically figure out everything on the fly. And organizing is not easy, as, as Paul was talking about earlier, that you never know what you're going to get into, but you do know that you're almost always going to be told no. And it's always going to be a fight to get to a yes, and no matter what. So you have to be really resilient in order to succeed. And so if you don't have someone there that you can talk to and be like, man, I'm going through this, you know, oh yeah, I've been through that. Don't worry. You know, you'll, you'll get there. Just keep doing it. If you don't have that person who can, you can talk to and talk about your challenges with and, and understands what you're going through, it's a frustrating job. It, it is very frustrating. There are way more losses than wins in organizing. And so you got to be able to keep your focus on those wins.
we say in here, you, you keep track of the no's because, you know, eventually you're going to get to a yes. So if you get, you know, 93 no's, then you're due for a yes at some point. In time. So that that's, to me, some of the big challenges with the job. One of the things, too, I want to add with that, we just launched this week, and the timing is good, a new website for the Smart Organizing Department, and it's called smartcareers.org. And one of the good things about it is there's going to be a resource section on the back end for, for organizers across the United States and across Canada, which is going to have try to fill a lot of that, right? The need for best practices, right, when it comes to organizing. So a new organizer, they have something there that they can read up on, videos they can watch, a lot of training and instructional videos webinars to get them up to speed as quickly as possible for organizing to help provide that support um, and also reach out to other organizers around the country. So I'm glad you brought that up. And it's definitely something that that within this organization, the department takes very seriously, the international takes very seriously, and that we're trying to address and uh, move forward on. Yeah. And I know personally, when I meet a new organizer, I always give them my card. I always tell them to call me, talk to me, you know, if they have any questions, I'm always trying to help new organizers because I understand it's, it's a frustrating job. And if you don't have that support network, I don't know how people do it. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely, I used to be an organizer a long time ago and I've been in both situations where, where I had a support network and where I did not have a support network. And um, it can be definitely a challenge. So what you described, obviously resilience is a uh, huge factor in being a successful organizer, but you know, there is some light here at the end of the tunnel in the news. There's been a lot of stories about general increase in interest in union organizing. There's got the Starbucks campaigns. We have the Amazon campaigns that are making some headlines. Also the uh, NLRB in contrast to the prior administration has become a lot more union friendly. From your perspective as an organizer, how important is it to have the union-friendly politicians, government staff, all of those folks in office? And then how is that going to be a positive impact uh, both for the members and for the growth of the union? So I think all this organizing that's going on at Starbucks and Amazon is great. I mean, I know I was just recently at a conference where they were talking a lot about what they're doing. I guess that there's already something like 70 or 80 Starbucks that have elected to join a union through an election process. So it's a done deal. And Amazon is, you know, having its struggles, but the more and more working class people get together to fight against the powers that be, the better off they will all be for it. And it's just a matter of time before that momentum keeps building and building. Now, as I talked about with that Appalachian campaign, you know, one of the things that the employer did is since we were telling the truth about all these deaths that this company had caused, they filed secondary boycott ULPs against us, 8B4s, saying that we were basically targeting their customers illegally, which we were not doing. But we had either 12 or 13 8B4 unfair labor practice charges filed against us at one time. And every single one of these, Peter Robb, the former general counsel for the National Labor Relations Board, had instructed all the regions to send all those cases up to advice, no matter what the situation was. Everything we were doing was completely legal as far as the case laws was concerned. But instead of just dismissing those cases, they all sat up at advice. And we were concerned that they were going to use our case as a way to institute what I think they were calling the corporate campaign. They wanted to make the corporate campaign illegal. And so our legal counsel kept telling me like, hey, just so you know, you know, this is out there. And so it was concerning that that was going on. We felt we were, we had good legal precedence for doing it, but nevertheless, you know, people I talked to there, I have a good friend in the laborers movement and he was saying, I think I'd be fired if I had that many ULPs against me like that. But we kept at it. And as soon as the Biden administration took over, Peter Robb was fired. I don't remember who the acting general counsel was for a little while. All those cases got dismissed. So that really made it put us back into the driver's seat where we could go back to using the same methods that we had always been able to use since the DeBartolo case came out, which said that we can't picket, but we can handbill aggressively and that picketing was not handbilling, which was an important distinction. So that really made it where our members through us can go out there and aggressively go after contractors in ways that impact their business in order to get them to, you know, agree to become union or listen to us more when we're talking about what's a benefit for those contractors to become union. And so I think, you know, what it's done is really just shift the focus back into being that organizing in the National Labor Relations Board is there 
to help workers. The National Labor Relations Act is a pro-worker act. And so changes in having government staff that understands that and having politicians who understand that the NLRA is for the workers, that's really just shifted the focus so that we can go out there and do our job without having to worry about how the contractors or the employers are going to push back on us to try to get us off our game to interfere with their workers' rights to choose to be part of a union or not to be part of a union. In my opinion, they don't have any role in that decision, right? It's not really their choice. Their workers are going to be union or not going to be union. It's their choice. Now, I say that with also understanding that we go talk to the employer all the time and try and get them to agree to become a union beforehand. But when you're in those other types of campaigns, when, you know, when you're not in the construction industry, I don't think the employer plays a role in whether their employees want to be union or not. I hope that answered that question. <laughs> I think that's a heck of a question. And, and, and when it comes to the end of the day for the employer, you know, the way I see it and the way I always saw it is it comes down to a business decision for them. Right. And their decision is either they can stay in that area, in that in that particular market sector, in that geographic area, and try to continue to do work, right, and be in the same market as us and risk that, or they can move somewhere else, or they could go and sign and get the benefits of the training and everything else that we have. Right. So it's up to them. At the end of the day, it becomes a business decision. For a lot of employers, they make the decision to become signatory. Um, and take advantage of what we have to offer, which is a heck of a lot. A lot of times, some just say, you know what, we'll leave the area. That's a win, too, because now they're not there anymore. Their presence isn't there, and they're not undermining our wage rates, our benefits, and the standards we set. And sometimes they stay, and then sometimes they have to be made an example of. Yep. So, Eli, I really, th this is re a really good conversation that we had. I really appreciate you being here, you know, and for, and for a lot of people listening, this might be their first time hearing about how top-down pressure campaign, also top-down campaign, just talking to employers and, and showing them what we have to offer and, and what we are all about. It's first, probably first time for a lot of people that they're exposed to that. So I hope this has been illuminating for people. Um, and I really thank you for being here, taking the time to sit down with us. Thank you. I appreciate your guys' time too. Thanks a lot. You guys have a nice weekend. Thanks, Eli. This is Daryl Roberts, Director of Organizing at SMART. In the next few months and years, SMART members will see an enormous amount of work with incoming mega projects everywhere from Texas and Tennessee to New York. If you know anyone interested in the sheet metal or transportation industries, or if you know anyone currently working non-union in our industry, tell them to visit smartcareers.org where they can learn about all the benefits of joining our union. Spread the word. Visit smartcareers.org today for information on higher pay, better benefits, and a secure retirement. We are now on the open mic segment of Talking Smart Podcast. We have with us today General President Joseph Sellers, who is joining us. Welcome, General President Sellers, to the podcast. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for the invitation again. I, I really enjoy these podcasts, and I know our members enjoy it. And it's really important that they give us their questions, and we go through a Q&A section at the end of each one of these segments, because if it's on the mind of some of our members, it's on the minds of many of our members. Absolutely. And one of the questions that we've been hearing about and comments about as well has been about the economy and about how a lot of people feel like it's been slowing down. Yet, at the same time, we hear about work picking up across North America. Can you tell us a little bit about new work that you're hearing about that is on the horizon? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we all see what's happening in the economy and the economy is not just the stock market, but we have big job growth and you know unemployment is down. But I will say that there are many, many jobs on the horizon. There's an unprecedented number of mega projects that are either breaking ground or in the pipeline right now. There's an exceptional amount of work, really thanks to the passage of the American Rescue Plan and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. Both of those were passed last year. That has really triggered a lot of the mega jobs that we're seeing right now you know, infrastructure and those types of projects has a ripple effect across many, many industries. And certainly ours has a lot of job and job opportunities. And we're really going to need to recruit and retain like we've never done before with the amount of work coming up. One sector of the industry, there's a major shift to electric vehicles coming. For example, in uh, Western Tennessee, there's a giant Ford manufacturing plant that is the largest in North America. 
Ford is looking to get away from combustible engines by 2030, 2031. Now, I will say when we talk about mega projects, it's like jaw dropping when the first package that came out, the first sheet metal package that came out and has been awarded is 1 million work hours on just one package. There's a second package that has come out as well. Now, the second package is another 750,000 hours. Also, there is a third package for a half a million hours in wall panel systems. So on this project, we're expecting this mega job to have 2.25 million hours on this job. And what also has been triggered is the supply chain for that, the supply chain of battery plants, battery storage. There's a projected another 1.6 million hours in that space of manufacturing and storage of batteries to be able to support this type of new manufacturing. Now that Ford has come out, many other automotive manufacturers have done the same thing. This is really now uh, triggers battery plant and storage facilities that is scheduled to be at 1.6 million hours. Other automotive manufacturing are happening or moving in the same direction. They're announcing the same shift to electric vehicles that we're talking about with Ford. And that will require more battery plants. That will require more storage. On top of that, there's also major hospital and manufacturing facilities that are going to be built across our country. This is a real shift with this administration to not only talk about U.S. manufacturing, but creating the action to get U.S. manufacturing done, which leads me into semiconductor work. So the largest plant in the world is scheduled to be built in Southern Ohio, and it needs to be open by 2025, and it will be a chip hub for the world in Southern Ohio. And that's not the only one. Every time I turn around, there's another chip plant that's going to produce and manufacture in this country across our footprint of the United States, Southern Ohio. New York, Oklahoma, Texas, areas like that where Texas Instrument between Oklahoma and Texas, Texas Instrument's going to be doing semiconductor chip plant work as well. And we all know that this is not just in our installers work, but we have fabrication, we have production members that are going to be making air handling equipment. When we're looking at the installation and we're looking at these types of industrial work, We're going to need the fans and the air handlers and the registers and everything that goes into this massive amount of work, which are our production segment of our union, our sheet metal segment of our union, that will be vitally important for U.S. manufacturing. Again, going back to U.S. manufacturing with real action, with real standards for our production members to be able to support these types of mega projects with the equipment that they work on every day, day in and day out. And they are the most competitive and trained and safe workforce out there producing these pieces of air handling equipment that are going to be used. Also, in um, our smart transportation division and our railroad mechanical, we received a proffer of arbitration from the National Mediation Board, which gets us closer to a contract. A contract that our transportation division and our railroad mechanical has been working on for years, and we're getting closer to that right now. You know, and this doesn't just happen. There's not a chance that this happens. It's been happening because we, together, you, our members, working together to make sure that we can turn these jobs into good union middle-class jobs. We've been meeting with the White House. We've been meeting with the administration. We've been meeting with our allies in Congress. We've been doing this on a regular basis to make sure that this turns into good union middle-class jobs performed by you, our union members. Make no mistake, the previous four years of chaos were a time where our issues were held at bay. At best, it was shifted to billionaires. And the billionaires got bigger in 2017. And the billionaires got bigger in 2020. And the billionaires got bigger when that administration just continued to make sure that they were taken care of. There is an infrastructure package, not just talking about infrastructure. Two-person crew was not only ignored, but there were new rules put in place to negate them. Rather than to work on stabilized retirement or having the ability to work with America's workforce. So we continue to work with this administration. 
we continue to work with them any way we possibly can so that we can continue to put good union middle-class jobs before our smart members in every sector that we work in. I want you to know your vote does matter. And elections have consequences. And we're going to see not just a week of infrastructure being talked about. We're going to be talking about a decade of infrastructure that's going to be working, that's going to benefit our union, that's going to help us to grow, and it's going to help us to have the ability for our families and our members to have those good union middle-class jobs that we hear so much about. So thank you for the question. And please continue to work with your local leadership and work with how we can continue to make sure that at every level that we are working with the administration, that we are telling them what's important to workers and their worker agenda on our pocketbook issues so that we can affect change that benefit our members. Thank you. You know, and you mentioned how elections have consequences. And you talk about how we've been working with this administration. They've been listening. They've been listening to us. One thing you mentioned about more hospital military projects that are out there, VA hospitals work on bases. Now, my understanding, we're not just building more projects, but we're talking about project labor agreements. That's correct. And we're now able to get on to some of these projects. A lot of times, a lot of those GSA jobs and those military jobs and those other government facilities, you can't get in to see what's going on. So we are now able to gain access to those sites. We are able to work with those commanders of those bases so that we have a good opportunity at securing those jobs. That's great. That's what they deserve too, right? Only the best. And, and when it comes to getting the best, we're the people they should be having on, the, on their projects there. Yeah, we talk a lot about like our Smart Heroes program, right? I mean, how nice would it be for our Smart Heroes that come out of Joint Base Lewis-McChord or Fort Carson, and they've gone through our Smart Heroes training. And the next thing you know, now we have a pathway to secure a project on those bases. And then that serviceman or women that retired from the military is able to work on that job now as a sheet metal worker. That's fantastic. And that's a heck of a way to give back to right this organization and for this country. I got to thank you for your time and for those comments. And for a lot of people out there, there's a lot of work coming down the line. And we're going to get on that. And really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you being on this podcast and giving us this update. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Thank you all. Uh, It's great being here. and look forward to our, our next segment. Thank you. Listeners interested in learning more about the status of the National Rail Contract Negotiations and our union's ongoing opposition to BNSF's high-vis attendance policy, can download episode 19 of the Talking Smart podcast that features Transportation President Jeremy Ferguson that's available anytime through the news menu link at the top of the Smart website or wherever you listen to podcasts.